All right, if you would, be turning in your Bibles to Hosea chapter 5. That's where we'll be this morning as we continue our journey through the book of Hosea. I'm Cameron. I'm the lead pastor here at Christ Community Church. And no, the, all the cars was not for this. It was actually for America's favorite pastime, baseball, even in the rain. And so hopefully that won't go on every Sunday, but if it does, we'll navigate and figure it out. Thank you for making the effort to get in here this morning. Um, a couple of things, again, uh, that we can celebrate, so get ready to put your Presbyterian hands together uh, to celebrate the birth of Charlotte Emily um, Chen and mother and baby. Go ahead. You can clap. For those who would want to know, seven pounds, nine ounces, mother and baby are doing well. Um, we will send you a link. They said give them about a week or so, and then we can start bringing them food lest they starve to death here in the South. And uh, so we'll have an opportunity to serve them well uh, during this time frame and check on them. Second thing that you should clap a little bit harder than that for uh, is this morning in Kenya, uh, there were two people, Jackson and Jacqueline, who came to Christ this morning during their church service. <clears throat> And we'll have a chance to hear from Travis and Laura, actually, I think in January, they'll be here with us. And so what, a, what an amazing thing. And that's, they're getting ready to leave. And what a gift to him as he's about to leave to be able to see two folks he's been investing in come to know Jesus before he leaves. And so uh, what a gift. Uh, and so that's, that's wonderful. All right. So let's uh, turn our, our attention back to Hosea. And again, I want to read, I won't give as much commentary as I did last time, but I want to read chapter 14, verses 14 through seven, because we've got to remember where we're going, right? And, and, and we, we can't hear what we're going to hear this morning, which is a hard word from Hosea. We cannot hear it in a vacuum. It has a purpose. It is arcing towards something. So if you have a Bible, flip to Hosea 14, and, and let me just read where, where God is calling them to. I will heal their apostasy. Now, apostasy just, that means disobedience or turning away from. I will heal their turning away from me. I will love them freely, for my anger has been turned from them. I will be like the dew to Israel. He shall blossom like the lily. He shall take root like the trees of Lebanon. His shoots shall spread out. His beauty shall be like the olive and his fragrance like Lebanon. They shall return and dwell beneath my shadow. They shall flourish like the grain. They shall blossom like the vine. Their fame shall be like the wine of Lebanon. So what a good vision that this is arcing toward. Though the moment is dark, though the situation into which Hosea is speaking it is very difficult, and times are not good for the people of God. Remember, uh, financially, they're doing fine, right? They're, as a nation, they've gained more land than they've ever had. Things have gone really well on the whole, with the exception of there started to be some assassin, assassinations of the kings after Jeroboam II. Now, politically, it starts to get into turmoil there, and then some of the kings begin to chase after lovers far less wild than God by trying to make uh, treaties with other surrounding nations. So at this period, we're probably entering and moving out of that season of prosperity when everything was going well into a darker season for the people of God. And so Hosea has been sent. Remember, Hosea is not reading a newspaper. That's critical. He's not saying uh, what has happened. He's saying what will happen unless they repent. 
So God in great grace, remember, for almost 170 years before Hosea comes, he's been calling this people out of darkness into the light of his marvelous presence. Hosea gets about 30 years to, to continue to call out to them. And unfortunately, what we know, what we know from history is they do not repent. Not, not as a nation. And they end up going into exile. They end up repenting as individuals. And the lineage continues, but Ephraim is blotted out. And so there is a cost. God must be sought while he is found, and he will not tarry forever. Sooner or later, his justice must come. Either you will know him as father, or you will know him as judge. So he's calling, know me as father, which is why he tarries so long to act as judge. And so uh, that brings us to here. So we finished the first three chapters, which were the lived prophecy. Now we're moving into the sermons that Hosea is preaching to the people of God. And so what I want you to get from this sermon this morning is that God will remove his presence from us as part of his redemptive justice to call us back to him while he may be found according to his will. All of that's really important. You take any of that out, and it becomes something different. If we take out according to his will and we say it's up to us, this is where you get uh, the idea, I, I, I'll, I'll wait till my deathbed to convert, right? the whole deathbed conversion issue. Actually, it's probably most predominant in many of our children and those who are currently in college that, that, that they say it like this. I'll get into all that religious stuff after I've had some fun. I'll, I'll respond to the Lord after I've kind of done my thing right? As if you get to decide how much time you have and when your thing is done and what exactly it is you have left to give, right? So I want to caution you of this mindset, all of you from young to old, that you can come whenever you like because he is this great big old granddaddy that has, and he's toothless and he can't do anything about it, but receive you in great grace and mercy. You are wrong. He doesn't have to receive you at all. But he does because he is a great loving father and he is calling for us to do so. And scripture even says you have to seek him while he may be found. It is not up to you. So it's always according to his will, something that we need to pay special attention to. But the removal of his presence, that in and of itself is not final judgment. That is to call us back. He wants us to return to him. We're going to see that in this passage. At the end of five, he says, I'm going to attack you like a lion. I'm going to tear you apart. But it's so that in your woundedness, you would come back to me. That you would realize that I am the only one who can love you and heal you and bring you through the darkness and brokenness of this world to return again to his presence and to return again to flourishing. So as we step into this, keep, keep those things in mind. And before I do, though, I do want to ask, and I think, I think many of you have experienced this, and some of you may not, this may be the only thing you've experienced, but, but have you ever experienced the absence of the presence of God? Have you ever had that feeling, that sense, or even asked that question, God, where are you? Where are you? Or have you ever struggled with thinking that he has departed from you or he's removed his hand from you or he's removed his blessing from you in some way, shape, or form? Maybe it was a, an extended illness. Maybe it's you enduring some form of abuse, verbal, physical, or otherwise. Maybe it is a dark season in which you couldn't find a job or you had a family member pass or a dark season in the church 
where things were tense and they were tough and you're wondering, God, where are you? Now, if you've had that experience, how did it affect you? Right? Were you, were you in the means of grace enough to know he'd even departed? Or was it just status quo? Were you, were you affected in the sense that what it made you do is check where you are and where he is and work to get where he is, right? Get on his level, as they say. I'm here, you're there, you need to get here. And so, does, it, does the absence of God make us, does it, does it stir within you a desire to seek his face, to actually find him, to seek wise counsel in the midst of that, to, to, to try to be comforted in that? Do you persevere in it, right? We're terribly American. We, we say, yeah, I asked one time. He didn't answer, so I was like, all right, well, phone's out, I guess, I don't know. You call me when you get ready. Instead of recognizing, no, the absence of the Lord is a very bad thing for the way in which we are created in the image in which we bear. And we should persevere and seek after him until he is found, right? Think about those Psalms, and we sang it in one of the songs. How long, O Lord? Well, how long was it that you, you think before that psalmist asked that question? Do you think it was like five minutes in, like your kids get in the car and like, it's a nine hour trip to the Outer Banks. And they're like, when are we gonna be there? In nine hours, this is gonna hurt, right? We're all gonna be suffering. We're in this together. Let's just calm down. And yet, five minutes later, right? How long, oh Lord, do we have to travel this road to prosperity? Uh, and so, so it's not like that. The psalmist, uh, oftentimes it's David and he's in a situation where his family is being blown apart because Absalom is at war with him or the promised kingship has not yet come and Saul is seeking his life and he is on the run and has to pretend to be crazy and all this kind of stuff. Those are not just a few minutes in. Those are months and weeks and years in. I... Uh, experienced this almost for reasons I can't explain straight away as a Christian. Um, I had a road to Damascus type experience where I became a believer. I'm not putting myself on par with Paul, so save that. It's not even close. It's just this. God had to really shake the tree because I'm real hard-headed and mean. And so God shook the tree. I became a believer and was great. I mean, it was, it was wonderful for about six months or, or eight months. And then darkness came. And that darkness swept in for almost seven or eight years where I struggled almost every single day. God, where are you? Why? Why do I feel this way? Why do I not believe I'm going to die a Christian? You may say, well, maybe you weren't a Christian. Okay, well, that's, that's then and that's, we're on this side now, right? And, and I, I, I literally was in agony and begging the Lord to deliver me from this agony. And my, my poor wife would have to endure all of the questions and just all of the torturousness. And I'd be okay for a few days and then I'd go right back in the tank again and the darkness would sweep in and she couldn't figure out how to make it go away. And then one day I had a presbycostal moment where the presence of the Lord flooded. I don't know how to explain this to you. I'm not going to charge money for it. You can't. It's still my Impala. It was in the Impala. Like you can't get in the car and like get a little whiff of the Shekinah. It's gone. I mean, whatever it was, it was momentary. It was brief and it was the presence of the Lord. I had to pull over. I was so just overwhelmed by the presence of God. 
And, and from that point forward, I, I have not doubted his nearness and presence near what I used to. And now when the questions come, I know which way to run. Before, I didn't go seeking after his face. I asked a question and stayed right in the same spot that I was standing. That's why it lasted for seven or eight years. And finally, at the end of my tether, I began to seek him, and that's when he showed up. I said, now, now you're ready to listen. And so that changed everything. But that was seven or eight, hear me, years, which is, by the way, nothing compared to 400 years of intertestamental silence or 400 years in Egyptian slavery, right? So, so this, this is something that can, can go on. For those of you who might be in the midst, not to discourage you, but you might be in the midst of a, a, a deep and dark place, the, the thing for you to do is persevere in seeking the Lord. And any of us who can help you in that, we would love to help you and walk with you through that. There's nothing that we're going to say that's gonna make you go, oh yeah, this is awesome. The, the absence of the presence of the Lord is something you are supposed to feel. You are supposed to grieve. You are supposed to hurt. You are supposed to suffer in it until it is resolved. Because remember, what's the point of the whole story from Genesis to Revelation? Anyone? What is it? God will be with his people. All right, so all of the kids in here from kindergarten and up, say it with me, right? God will be with his people. Try it. Some of those voices sounded deeper than uh, maybe a second grade. I got to be honest with you. But that's really important. And if, if, if we don't pass on to the next generation, that our, that our, the whole focus of this thing is that God would be with his people, we have failed miserably. We will have given them a false gospel and led them astray. Right? So over and over again, that's what we got to come back to. Because what is Jesus? What is Jesus? What's his name? What's the name that fits with this? It's Christmas time. Go ahead. Emmanuel, which means what? God with us. So Jesus is God with us. And by the way, uh, since we are the church and the Holy Spirit, who's the Holy Spirit? What is he? We sang a song about him. He's part of the Trinity, right? He's God. So the Spirit whom Christ left with us is what? God with us. You understand which is why we need not let the Holy Spirit be hijacked by all the other denominations and us forsake him because it is the presence of the Lord. And I know some of you are like, asking the presence to fill the atmosphere? What are we doing right now? No, that's just, that's just Holy of Holies language. That's the, 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 the smoke that rises from the altar. That's just using Old Testament language to talk about a present reality, right? So we should long for the presence of the Lord, we should be constantly seeking and reassessing where are you, Lord, and where am I, and where am I in reference to you, right? So that's what he's going to call for because in Hosea 5, what's happening is the people have forsaken the presence of God as if it were no big deal. They basically are talking about, we'll just do a deathbed conversion. We'll just, you know, when it gets bad enough, we'll go sacrifice a few animals. That's all he needs. Kill a few lambs and God is satisfied, Right? In chapter 6, he's going to say, I desire much more than your sacrifice. And you are a fool if you think that I am to be swayed by just the slaughtering of small animals. And so they also are going to find that he will remove that presence and it's going to cost them. And so as we step into the text, keep those things in mind. But if you are in the midst of the experience of the absence of the presence of God, let us pray for you this morning. Don't leave here without letting somebody, somebody 
talk to you, pray for you, because I, I know how agonizing and isolating that can be. And remember, Satan's greatest tool is to isolate you. That's what he wants. He wants you cut off so he can destroy you. He's not looking for Marilyn Manson 2.0. He's looking for a destroyed image bearer. That's what he's looking for. All right, let's read verses uh, one through seven, Hosea chapter five. Give your attention to the reading of God's word. Hear this, O priests. Pay attention, O house of Israel. Give ear, O house of the king, for the judgment is for you. For you have been a snare at Mizpah and a net spread upon Tabor, and the revolters have gone deep into slaughter, but I will discipline all of them. I know Ephraim, and Israel is not hidden from me. Oh no, for now, O oh Ephraim, you have played the harlot. Israel is defiled. Their deeds do not permit them to return to their God, for the spirit of harlotry is within them, and they know not the Lord. The pride of Israel testifies to his face. Israel and Ephraim shall stumble in his guilt. Judah also shall stumble with them. For their flocks and herds, they shall go to seek the Lord, but they will not find him. He is withdrawn from them. They have dealt faithlessly with the Lord, for they have borne alien children. Now the new moon shall devour them with their fields." Now remember in chapter four that the first set of people that Hosea deals with is the house of the Lord because judgment begins where? In the house of the Lord. Why would you think judgment will begin in the house of the Lord instead of the world? Because the world is not expected to act different than its, its nature. We are a renewed nature. We're a renewed people. We are the priesthood of all believers. It is expected that we would act differently. There are expectations that are different for us than for the world. Think about Paul in 1 Corinthians 5. He said, I'm not, call, I'm not telling you not to deal with the world. They're going to do what they're going to do. But you, you ought to look different so that people will be drawn to the Lord our God. How will the world know who we are? What does Jesus say, John 15? By what? By the opinions we have of one another. Right? Isn't that what it says? No, that's a false translation. It's a bad translation, actually. It's by the love that we have for one another. Now, not cheap love. Not love that doesn't call each other to account when we are in sin. Not cheap love that doesn't say, hey, you are headed down a really bad path. You are leading away from the presence of the Lord. You are being cut off, which are not good conversations sometimes to have, are they? So much easier just to step back and say, yeah, it's just I'd rather not get involved in this because this is messy. Who wants to do that? I got enough problems of my own. And so, so he starts with the priests who ought to, ought to have made sure that the people knew who God was. Remember, that was their primarily, primary problem. They didn't have knowledge of the Lord. Hosea expands that footprint, not only to the priests, but to those who are the higher-ups, the house of Israel, those who are supposed to be representative of this northern kingdom and the king himself. He takes it all the way to the king's court. Do you have any idea how dangerous that is? For the prophet to call out the king in his court? Right? And so he is saying, it is all of you. It is the entire structure that the Lord set up that is corrupt. And it is, it is actually taking the very places historically that should be evidences of God's grace. Mizpah and Tabor. 
They are taking those places that at one time were evidences of God's historical grace in this world, and they have turned them into a snare. They have turned them into places of false worship. Remember from uh, chapter 4, which says they were, they were worshiping on every height. False worship. They were brazen about it. So the very places that should have turned the hearts of the people back to the Lord had become a geography of fallenness and destruction. And the Lord says, make no mistake, I will not let this go. I must be just. I cannot allow the people to be destroyed and not do anything about it. You've got to understand, I must rise. To be a good father is not to watch my children perish, even if it means I must judge some. So he says, I will discipline all of them. And in contrast to them not knowing him, he says, no, I know you, Ephraim. I know you all the way down into the depths of your darkness. I know your secrets. You hide nothing from me. Now, how many of us function when we sin as if we're really good at hiding it? Like we think nobody notices when we've had too much to drink. We think nobody notices when we start to get irritable because we're looking at things on our computer that we ought not be looking at. We think that nobody notices when we don't show up to church for two or three months or we begin to kind of drift away or we don't respond to emails or phone calls. We seem to think that we operate in a greater darkness than we do. You don't. You are known by the Lord your God. I may not know. You may pull one over on me, which ain't accomplishing very much. But you cannot pull anything over on him. He knows you all the way down because he created every part of you. And good that he knows us all the way down because he cares for every ounce of our being. He cares for every moment of our lives. Think about what he says. There is no hair that falls from your head that I didn't know it. And he's known a lot from my head that have fallen (laughs) and are falling still, it appears. And so he says, I know you, though you don't know me. And he says that what you are doing, now again, we got to be careful that we remember who he's talking to. He's not talking to the Canaanites. He's not talking to the world. He's talking to a group of people who are supposed to be the people of God, right? So this is an in-house discussion. So he's saying that what you are doing, the way in which you are, your false worship is being set up, you are carrying yourself further and further and further away from me. Your deeds are keeping you from me. How many of you have seen this in someone's life that as they continue to make bad decisions, as they continue to run, as they fail to come and seek the face of the Lord, and as they fail to receive the means of grace that they so desperately need, they drift further and further and further and further away. I've seen it so many times. Uh, I had a friend of mine, in fact, mentioning Travis. He and I were ministering to a family, um, and the guy worked with Travis, and, uh, and he, he just struggled so, so much, but, but he was starting to do well. We were, a bunch of us were meeting together and talking about family and life and going through scripture and just growing, and we're doing, he, I, I, he just was a new man. There was a different light in his eyes, and one Sunday, Travis called me, and he said, hey, he happened to be out of town, and you have to know Travis. He called me and said, boy, Gary's gone off the reservation. 
I was like, uh, yeah, I can interpret that. What does that mean? You're speaking in tongues? No. So, so I go over to check on Gary, and it was, it, I won't describe it because it's not worth, we shouldn't talk about it, but it was terrible. It was one of the worst situations I've ever walked into. And Gary looked at me with all that light, all that goodness that he had been amassing was gone. And he looked at me empty, and he was angry, and he said, you're going to get out of my house in the next three minutes and you're never going to come back. I know that what we've been doing has been better for me. I know that it has been better for my family, but I don't want you knowing my business. I don't want to be this close to anybody. Get out. And I said, okay, I'm going to do what you're asking me to do. But I'm going to continue to pray for you. And I am, we are here, all of us, for when you want to return and seek the face of the Lord. And I left. That was 15 years ago. Uh, about a year ago, I got a message, a GoFundMe page that he was trying to get into rehab. So this man has been drifting from and crippled by that moment for 15 years. To this date, I don't know the outcome of that. I haven't received any updates. We were able to give some toward trying to help him go into rehab. But think about that for a second. He was drawing close. Things were changing. It was wonderful for him. Even he confessed in the midst of his sin. And yet he pushed away and said, I want more distance between me and all the means of grace. And it has been supremely costly to his wife, to his children, and to him. It has been so destructive. And so this is a warning to us. You don't get to decide the consequence of your sin. You don't get to decide how costly it is to you personally and how much damage it does to your relationship with God as the people of God. You don't get to decide when to come back. Notice what the text says. It says that they, they start to get it, so they gather up all their flocks. This means that they're coming to give their sacrifices, and they're coming seeking the Lord. And what does it say? He had departed from them. He was gone. And I've seen that when someone tries to kind of they, they, they think that they can come and make atonement because they, it's cheap grace. And it's not, it's not a, in any way, shape, or form a genuine heart repentance. They're just wanting to pay the lowest farthing of this thing. They're just wanting to give a little pittance and see if that's enough. When God has said, well, I don't need your pittance. I don't need your blind lambs. I don't need your, your, your weak sacrifices. What I need is your heart. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. I desire you not your lambs. And so they're beginning to experience, they've taken for granted the presence of the Lord and now he's saying, I'm gonna remove it. But here's the good news. The Bible doesn't end at verse seven. It doesn't. It keeps going. And there's good news as we go on. And here's the other thing. He warned them in Deuteronomy 31, 16 through 18 and also 32, 19 through 43, he warned them a long time ago. He said, when you depart from me, because Moses was about to die. He said, Moses, you're not even going to get cold in the ground. These jokers are going to go crazy and go against me before you can even get out of here. And here's what's going to happen. I am going to depart from them. 
I'm going to remove my presence. I'm going to turn my face away from them until they seek me. So here's what's very important. This is not the first time the people of God should have heard this. This is why Hosea begins with the household of the priest. The priest should have been calling them to return because the covenant curse was beginning to come to fruition. The one that had been promised. So, lest some of you think God is cruel. No, no, he's not. He has warned and he has warned and he has made it as clear as it can possibly be. That if you turn from me, if you are going to go your own way, then I'm going to turn away from you and turn you over to that. But the good news is not for final judgment, but so that you would come back which is what we're going to see in the second part. But listen to what Douglas Stewart, uh, Old Testament scholar, says about this passage. He says, All over Israel, political and religious oppression keeps the people from the freedom that they would have via a true knowledge of Yahweh. The nation's government and religion were established by God to protect and benefit his people. Instead, they have preyed upon the people like snares to trap and imprison rather than to support and protect. This is why God must rise up and strike those structures down. That's why he's going to carry them into exile, remove the king, remove the priesthood, remove it all. Because that is actually more destructive to them than if they were actually in exile. Because in exile, they might would turn and, and repent and come back, which is what you see in the day of Pentecost the returning of the people of God. So let me ask you this. If God has departed from you, for, for whatever reason, you feel like his presence has, has departed from you, well, let me first say that doesn't mean you're not saved, by the way, right? These are the people of God. The removal of the presence of the Lord does not mean that you have lost your salvation or that you are not saved. That, let's make that really, really clear here. But what keeps you from returning to the Lord when you have drifted from him and you feel a gap between you and his presence? What is it that keeps you from returning? Is it bad theology? Is it you just like doing your own thing because you are just a rebel at heart and you want to get away with what you want to get away with and you want to blame God for what you've decided you want to do in the first place? Right? Is it baggage from some other experience? How many of us have bad church experiences where we've been in a position to where we've been hurt by leaders? Look here, God is angry with that. He will deal with those who are in leadership of some kind who have harmed you. But don't let that keep you from him. You don't need a human mediator of us. You need Christ alone as mediator. And so what keeps you from returning to him when you've drifted. You need to think about that. Is there an actual, a biblical reason why you shouldn't come back? Maybe you say this, and this word, I think it's bad theology. Cameron, you don't know what I've done. You're right, I don't, unless you tell me. And even when you tell me, you're not gonna tell me the whole truth, and I wasn't there to see it all, so you're gonna give me the sanitized version. But God does know you. So I don't need to know. And you may say, but I've, I'm, I'm so broken and so just filthy, I can't return. Well, wait a minute. How are you more filthy than these folks? How can you be more filthy than any of these people? As we're going to see. 
that you, you say you couldn't return. Well, I just, I need to get some things together before I come back. It's really, is that, is that, what, you, is that what God says is, hey, why don't you, I'm gonna let you work on some of it. You get some of your stuff together and then when you're ready, you know, you come talk to me. I need, I need you cleaned up a little bit. No, he says, I don't want all that. I don't want you doing all that religious stuff thinking that that's what I desire. No, I desire you and the religious stuff is intended to show you exactly where to go. It's not intended to be this kind of um, voodoo shell game. It's not intended to be stuff that we, it's not like he is bound by those things. In fact, that's why he strikes it all down in Christ. It's been fulfilled in him. We don't have to keep slaughtering animals. Christ, once and for all, is the finished sacrifice. Amen. Now you can just come boldly before the throne of grace. So anything that would keep you from God, from returning to him, is bad theology Bad psychology, bad sociology, bad anthropology, bad anything-ology. So please, if, if you are in a place and you're struggling this morning and you feel cut off from the Lord and you think there's something that's keeping you from him, come and seek wise counsel. Come and talk to us and let us pray with you. We may not convince you straight away, but let us have that conversation. It's worth having. You understand? Don't be afraid of the conversation. You can still remain adrift if you like. We can't make you come. I'm not asking so I can know who you are so I can discipline you. I'm not the one who's gonna discipline you. I'd rather help you. I, I, I long for us to be in the presence of the Lord. If you would turn back to the text, let's look at verses eight through 15. This is where God removes his presence from his people more distinctly. Blow the horn in Gebeah, the trumpet in Ramah. Sound the alarm at beth Aven. We follow you, O Benjamin. Ephraim shall become a desolation in the day of punishment among the tribes of Israel. I make known what is sure. The princes of Judah have become like those who move the landmark upon whom I will pour out my wrath like water. Ephraim is oppressed, crushed in judgment because he was determined to go after Filth, but I am like a moth to Ephraim and like the dry rot to the house of Judah. When Ephraim saw his sickness and Judah his wound, then Ephraim went to Assyria and sent to the great king. But he is not able to cure you or heal your wound. For I will be like a lion to Ephraim and like a young lion, the house of Judah. I, even I, will tear and go away. I will carry off and no one shall rescue. I will return again to my place until they acknowledge their guilt and seek my face and in their distress, earnestly seek me. So here again, he says, blow the trumpet and he's listing all these places which essentially are on the border between the North Kingdom and the South Kingdom. And he's saying, blow the trumpet because an invader is coming, judgment is coming. And even makes this little uh, statement about Beth Aven. Beth Aven means the house of evil, which is what Beth El had become. Beth El had become a place of false worship. This is where one of the, Jeroboam the first had put one of those golden calves. And so Hosea is making a comment here, calling it Beth Aven, house of evil. And he's saying that, that this intruder is just going to take away and lop off parts of 
uh, of the northern kingdom. This probably happened with Tiglath-Pileser in the, in the, the war that happened uh, between Assyria and the north. He did take a bunch of those things, so this may be a foreshadow of that. Um, but it's also a foreshadow of what happens when they get attacked and Judah comes in and tries to take back land that wasn't theirs to take back. That's, this is the moving of the landmark, which is against Deuteronomy 27, 17. They're not, it's not up to them to decide what their land is. It's up to the sovereignty of the Lord to grant them the promised land. So this is where Judah become, begins to come undone. They failed to listen to the warning in Hosea 4, 14. Judah is being sucked into the same behavior, the same issues that the North Kingdom is being sucked into. And they too will pay for their sin in 586 BC when they are taken into exile. But notice the grace of the Lord to even include them in this and say, you will suffer the same fate if you go this way. Remember, he's not reading a newspaper. He's predicting what will happen if they fail to repent. And so he makes it very clear to them that there's an invader coming. Now, what's interesting is that that invader is not from without. This invader is gonna come from within like the moth and like the rot. He is gonna destroy them from the inside out because, see, they think they can protect themselves against an external invader. What they can't protect themselves from is the judgment of the Lord. And in their woundedness, instead of them turning to the one who could heal them, and seeking his face earnestly and diligently. Instead, they go after a man who was once their enemy. They're seeking help from an enemy. Has this ever happened in history before? We do this a lot, actually. I'm reading about World War II, and it's fascinating to hear how Roosevelt and Stalin hung out and were kind of buddies. Interesting buddy to have, Joseph Stalin, right? And just just all this stuff that went on politically and how involved actually many of the Arabic countries were on our side. They really didn't like us very much because we treated them very poorly. In fact, our soldiers, a lot of times in Morocco, would um, shoot Arabs for target practice. It doesn't endear you to a people, I can just tell you. So kids, understand if you use your neighbors as target practice, probably not going to go well for your neighborhood, right? Bad idea. And so we all the time are kind of making these alliances instead of actually seeking the one who can actually heal us and to do so with perseverance. See, this is our problem. And this is where I think many of our kids, teenagers in particular, your horizon is so short. You think that if this, whatever your problem is, doesn't change within a week or two that you're stuck with this. No, you are not stuck with this. Listen to me. I was a 15-year-old once. Long ago in a land far away, in a galaxy far, far away. Cue the music, John Williams. Now, you can change. You're not resigned to this. You've got to persevere. And the older I get, the more important I see perseverance to be. And far more, it actually allows me to relax more instead of press so hard and force and try to make things happen. We have more liberty than we recognize in persevering and seeking after the Lord. But notice what he says. He says that that he is going to respond to them as a lion. He's going to tear them apart. That doesn't sound good. But he's going to do so so that they would know who the true healer is and to return to them. He will wound them in order to bring them back to him. Think of Christ's words. If your right hand sins against you, cut it off. Your right eye sins against you, pluck it out. Now, don't go doing that. 
But he's saying that sometimes there has to be a wounding in order for you to heal. There has to be a removal in order for things to change. Things have to be pruned sometimes. But he's going to do it because he wants them to return to him, that they would acknowledge their guilt. What does that mean? That means to repent, to say in humility, I have sinned against you, Lord. And to seek him in their distress, which means you're the only one who can heal us. You are the one. It is your face alone that I seek. That's why we sang Psalm 27 after having read Psalm 27. You may say, well, that's one of them contemporary songs. Well, it's, Psalms were written a long time ago. Yeah, the tune's new. And so, so that's why we've been emphasizing so much this morning the presence of the Lord. That's why we read Revelation 21, the great moment when, when we will be unfettered, unguarded, un-anything in the presence of the Lord. All that stuff will be removed and at long last we will see with eyes wide open. And what a glorious day it's going to be. That is the arc of the story. And if you were to read that passage that I've quoted a few different times, Isaiah 55, 6 through 13, you would see that when he says, seek the Lord while he may be found, that can sound kind of harsh, but after that, it talks about essentially what's going to be in the new heavens, new earth. This is why you would seek him, because all blessing flows through him. And you want to seek him while he may be found before judgment comes. This is why in 2 Peter, it says, it's not that the Lord tarries. No, he is patient because he longs for the family to get bigger which is what should be part of our emphasis. We should be disciples who are making disciples. This is why the next generations, plural, are so important. This is why our children's ministry and our youth ministry and all that we're doing is critical, critical that we continue to teach them and raise them up in the way they should go. So let me ask you, what causes you or what has caused you to earnestly seek the face of the Lord? How many of you would admit that prosperity, that it, like, like you suddenly getting a lump sum of money or getting an awesome job and having a bunch of good things happen, how many of you would admit, no, that, that actually makes me seek the face of the Lord? Like, I realize that's a dangerous thing and, and having all this prosperity is dangerous. I need to get with the Lord and make sure I'm not doing something weird with it. How many of you would admit that that causes you to seek the face of the Lord? Anyone? Me neither. I just have my hand up for effect. I haven't done it either. And should, though, right? So, so we should, actually, that's one of the more dangerous places. We're moving into a new house. It has not been without conflict. Not between us, but just in general. And so we need to be seeking the face of the Lord because he's giving us a good gift to use, hopefully, for hospitality and the kingdom purposes. And not just a safe place for us. And same thing for the rest of you. But most of the time, if we're honest, when we seek the face of the Lord, when is it? What makes us turn and seek the face of the Lord? Suffering. Almost unanimously, suffering. Right? If you suddenly get a diagnosis, I remember when um, I've got a thyroid problem and, uh, and I had a pretty nasty goiter that was, fortunately it was even, so I didn't have to wear an ascot. Uh, and so I had a pretty nasty goiter and I thought and, and was concerned about it being cancer. Right? There was some genuine concern. The doctor was very concerned. He said, I, I don't, I don't know what to tell you. And so I just remember uh, being so just overwhelmed by that. I remember being in our basement and I was doing laundry. Uh, I, I guess I was trying to make atonement. Like, don't give me cancer, I'm doing laundry. See, I'm a good man. I'm a good father. Um, and, so, and so I just remember crying out to the Lord and weeping. Don't let me, not now, Lord, not now. As if I could change that by that cry. 
Many of you have similar stories. It is suffering that will sometimes lead you to the Lord. But, the, but, but how, about, how many of you run immediately to the Lord when you sin? I do now. I can hold my hand up high. I run as quick as I can in humility and repentance to receive that mercy that I desperately need in that time of trouble, to receive that grace that I desperately need to change and move forward in that time of trouble. So the, play, the things that ought to cause you to turn and seek the Lord are prosperity, sin, and suffering. Now, what does that cover? Most of life. And so we ought to be a people who are daily, daily seeking the face of the Lord because we know we need it daily. Now, am I talking about, now, what did you just hear? Did you just hear, unless you've got a two-hour devotional time, you're just not a real Christian. Please don't hear that. Seeking the face of the Lord is an all-of-life reality. You don't actually have to add anything to it. It may be that you do it on the drive-in instead of hearing yet again why the warriors are going to sweep the, sweep the calves in four, right? And, and LeBron's going to be tainted. He's never going to be as great as Jordan. You don't need to hear that opinion one more time. You'll be okay. Or yet another political opinion about why Trump is going to be, go down in history as the worst president in history or the best president in history or the most media, whatever it may be. Take that time. If that's all you got, seek the Lord. Keep your eyes open if you're driving. You can use all kinds of different time that you could leverage for this. And it doesn't have to be extensive. It just needs to be genuine, right? And so we need to be a people who are defined by the presence of the Lord, who are defined by and, and evidence the fruit of God's presence, which is our love for one another. Listen to what David Allen Hubbard says about this. He says, the judgment of the divine lion is meant to prompt repentance. The judgment of the divine lion is meant to prompt repentance and to cause sincere seeking of God outside of the corrupt cult. That's good. That's a good word. That, they're cultists. They're Paulus, all of that had become corrupt and they needed to seek the face of the Lord outside of that, but they were only gonna do it when the divine line would tear and rend asunder. So think about this day and talk about as family and help your kids understand when they ought to seek the Lord. And some of that's gonna be how you treat them, right? Because you are the representative, covenant heads, and how you treat them when they mess up and how you treat them in the midst of their prosperity, and how you treat them in the midst of their suffering. Give them a clear picture of this good God who longs for his children to be gathered to him, not cast from him. So what are the two things that we learn from this passage? One, that we should not take God's presence for granted. People of God, we're, we do this. We do some of it's evidence in our church attendance. I'm not going to beat you up on that. I, I, I have to be here. I, I, there's like job issues if I don't. I don't have a lot of choice. So I'm not trying to drag you with me. But what are we saying? What are we saying when this, this gathering that God had called for, this corporate worship, that we're just casual about it? What are we saying when, when we, we don't pray? What are we saying when we don't seek wise counsel? What are we saying about the means of grace when we reject them? That means that we're taking God's presence because all those things are those things for granted. And we need to return to him while he may be found. And then secondly, God will at times remove his presence as part of his redemptive justice to call us back to him. So if you are experiencing a distance between you and God, seek him. Don't get angry and turn away from him and say, well, he knows where I am. 
let him call me. Send me an email. Right? You seek after him because it is you who has drifted, not him. He is unchanging. So as you think about this things, these things on this Lord's Day Sabbath, my hope is that you will take heart because he longs for you to be with him. Think about this. The creator of the universe wants you near him. He wants you to know him and he wants to know you. And he wants to bless you lavishly, as Ephesians 1 says. Who of us doesn't love to be blessed lavishly in some way, shape, or form? That's what he longs for. Now, when I say blessed lavishly, I'm not talking about a new car because I'm still driving a 2000 Impala and that thing is falling apart as we speak. The windows don't work. And so if that's a sign of God's blessing, I'm in trouble. But I do have this awesome wife and great house. And so there's other things, right? But it's not about stuff, is it? It's about him. It's about relationship. Let us not forget that. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you. Thank you that you would love us so much that you would wound us. That you would wound us in order to draw us back to you. I I can't imagine how much it hurts you to have to wound that which you created. To have to tear that which you created in order to draw us back to you. We, We don't understand the grief that you endure. The grieving of the Holy Spirit. The grieving of Christ as we trample underfoot at times the very blood that he shed for us. But God, thank you that you are patient with us though we are impatient with you, that you are faithful to us though we are unfaithful to you. Thank you that you continue to keep before us the means of grace that we reject week in and week out. God, thank you that the Holy Spirit moves and guides and convicts. Would you this morning convict all of us who have taken your presence for granted. Convict all of us who are failing to seek after you in the midst of our distress. Seek after you in the midst of our guilt. Seek after you in the midst of our prosperity. God, would your Holy Spirit guide us back to you? Show us the way. May your word light the way back to you before the throne of grace. Would you help undo our bad theology and anthropology and sociology and psychology? all of that that keeps us from you. Would your spirit destroy it all, even if it's painful to us? And God, would would you apply the means of grace to us this morning to make us new again, to give us hearts that are tendered toward you and toward each other, and help us to be a church that evidences in all of the places where we have spheres of influence the beauty and the glory of the gospel. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.